Let's pray together. Father, it's already been a beautiful time of worship. We prayed, Lord, beforehand that your Holy Spirit would be quickened with our congregation today, that we might all come closer to you. And Father, in part, that's what our time together is all about. To come close to you, our loving and gracious God, a God of purpose, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God who's working your purpose out day by day and moment by moment in the lives of all of us on this planet. And by your grace, dear God, for those of us who are called by your name, you're working your purpose out with your power and with your presence in our very life. Father, what an opportunity we have to be here and to give thanks to you and worship you and exalt your name above all other names. Father, if we could do that on a daily basis, it'd be beautiful. We'd be a walking testimony to you and to your grace And other people would see it in us, but Lord, that's not always the case. Sometimes, dear God, we forget who we are. We forget that we have been saved by grace through faith. And instead, dear God, we try to take control of our own life. And almost without exception, we make a mess out of that. There are times, dear God, when we allow some basic instincts that we have from our old self to dictate our thoughts and our behavior. Other times, dear God, when we say things to people that we have absolutely no business saying. Father, we are a people in a country without boundaries. I ask you to forgive us. But I pray, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would bring us individually under conviction so that that prayer for forgiveness would come from us and from a sincere heart. And I prayed, Father, that tomorrow and the day after that we would have a new commitment to walk with you, to love like you love, to show mercy like you show mercy, to be a graceful people to help those who are in need, to be a blessing in our own home, in our own workplace, that we might live with Jesus at the very center of our life. And what a difference that would make, Father. Father, I pray, as I so often do, for our country. I pray for spiritual revival in this land. I pray, dear God, that you'd work a miracle among us and that you would absolutely capture the hearts and the minds of people all across our country. Those who are filled with pride and those who are filled with resentment and anger. Those who have rejected you in days past. I pray, dear God, for the powerful moving of your spirit 
I pray, dear God, that your church might be what you want it to be. I pray that we wouldn't have a new orthodoxy in our land, but instead that the church would hold dearly to the teachings of Scripture and not be ashamed of those things. I pray, dear God, that you might change the hearts of ministers and spiritual leaders who have drifted away from you or who have never known you. And I pray that you would bring them to yourself. Father, as we've already said this morning, we have people in military uniforms and police uniforms and all sorts of other people who serve. I pray your blessing on them. I pray when they're afraid that you would give them courage. I pray that when they're unsure, dear God, that you would give them assurance. For those in our own midst, Lord, who face challenges physically, financially, emotionally, through broken relationships, I pray, dear God, that you would open up a whole new chapter in our life and that you'd help us to have a confidence as we walk in your spirit and not in the flesh. And that we would know in our heart of hearts that no matter where we go, no matter what we face, you not only know about it, but you're involved, and we belong to you, and you're our Father, and you're going to help work it out. Thank you, dear God, for our church. Thank you for the opportunity to minister here and across this country and around this world. Thank you for the opportunity to reach out and to feed others, both physically and spiritually. Thank you for having first loved us, that we might now know how to love. Thank you in the very beautiful and precious name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Our study this morning, as we continue in Philippians, is going to begin in the third chapter, and it's going to be the first 12 verses. The third chapter, the first 12 verses. I encourage you to open your Bible and to keep it open in your lap and follow along as I read in a moment, and then to keep it open as we study together, that the Word might continually impact you. As soon as you've found your place, please look up. Let's pray together. Father, we come as children wanting to be fed this morning. And if some of, them, of us are not already hungry, Lord, I pray you'd flip that switch in us and that you'd cause us to really get excited about what we're about to do. I pray you'd speak to us through your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would allow the words that I speak to be pleasing to you. And if for some reason they are inconsistent with that, I ask that you'd let them fall on deaf ears. And then I pray, dear God, that we would take your truth and that we would live it out this next week. 
and that on a weekly basis your word would help conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. So, Father, please bless us as we turn to your word. In Christ's name, amen. All of us have heard about Martin Luther. We know varying amounts about him. Uh, Most of us know that he was one of the leaders of the Reformation back in the 1500s, that our denomination and other Reformed denominations have grown out of that Reformation, and he was a major contributor to that, while I think unintentionally. But because he saw reform was necessary in the church, God used him to that end. In his biography, there's a little insight into the man that I think is really significant in light of our study this morning. He said that when he became a believer, he began to try to live the life that the Bible teaches that when he became ordained to the ministry, he continued in that endeavor. He said he tried as hard as he could. And I would imagine he lived a pretty exemplary life because he was so committed to trying to be the man that God wanted him to be. But the insight that Martin Luther gives is when he tells us that try as hard as he could try He never had a peace in here. That while he tried to do all the things that were expected of him and even more, in his private life and in his public life, he had an uneasiness in here that he couldn't overcome. There's a little phrase that I think applied. The law alone crushes us. And the reason is, none of us can live up to it perfectly. And he apparently was trying to find his peace and his security in what he was doing. And as well as he did it, he never found that peace. As he studied the scriptures, and that's the source of our understanding in all of life, as Luther studied the scriptures he began to realize, particularly through the writings of Paul, that it wasn't so much about him. It was about what God was doing in him. And as he came to understand that, he coined a little phrase. And that phrase was sanctification by faith, not by works. And that is foundational to the Reformed faith. It is foundational to what we as Presbyterians believe. It's foundational to what many Christians believe throughout the world. That you do not earn your salvation. You gain your salvation through faith. Amen? Am I preaching to the choir? It's the truth. It's what the Bible teaches. I want to read the passage to you, and this is one of many of Paul's passages that talk about this very topic. And you can start to see how Luther was impacted by this. 
I'm reading from Philippians, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. And I'm going to read through the twelfth verse. Listen very carefully. God is about to speak to you and to me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. May God bless the reading of his word. There's something that um, has touched every one of our lives. I don't care what part of the world we're from. I don't know what our cultural experiences are. But you and I were born with a mindset. And the mindset goes like this. If I work, I can earn a reward. If I live, I have some entitlements. And most of us, as we grow toward adulthood will embrace one of those two concepts, maybe even both of them. It just comes so natural to us. Everything in our environment says to us, if you put forth effort, you get a reward. So we bring that kind of mindset into the church and we reason in our fallen nature, if I go to church, if I give a tithe, if I do this service, if I'm kind to other people, Things are going to work out spiritually. God's going to be happy with me, and he's going to embrace me. And if he doesn't, I'm entitled to it anyway. 
I don't know how many of you listened to the Billy Graham presentation this last week. I was so very touched. If you listen to preachers and to evangelists on television and in many churches today, you would never hear the message that Billy brought. His message was always simple, and it was simple this last Thursday night when I sat and listened. You know what his message was? You can't earn your salvation, and you ain't entitled to nothing except damnation. Now, that's not said very much from the pulpit today. But when I read my Bible, I read of a God who's in the business of saving people, not letting people save themselves. So Billy Graham talked about the cross. That was central to his message. And how there's no other way to Jesus except through the cross. To have one who would atone for our sins because we can't get it right. And how through that atoning death on the cross, the shed blood of Christ has washed away our sins. And when God looks at us, he doesn't say, oh, you've been good and I'm going to save you or you're entitled to this. Instead, what he sees is the shed blood of his own son. And he provided God that atonement as he gave a substitute for us. That's radically different than what you hear if you've never been exposed to the gospel. And it's radically different than what a lot of people believe today in our culture and all around the world. I want you to look at the passage with me. And I want to take just a few verses at a time. The first three verses reassure us that we are the circumcised. That grows out of a struggle that was going on in the New Testament church. The struggle was this. Some Jews, because the Christian church was founded by Jews as God moved on them, some of the Jews who came to faith said, you must still keep the traditions of the church. You must still be circumcised. And I am sure there were all kinds of other rules and regulations that they wanted to put in place. So they said, it's fine that you are saved, but now as a born-again person, here's a list of things that you must do. They were called Judaizers. And they followed Paul around all through Galatia and throughout all of the churches that he ministered in. And they were trying to convince the new converts that they needed to be physically circumcised. Anytime you hear that, (coughs) anytime that you hear there's something you have to do to be saved, realize that's earning your own salvation. There's some very well-intentioned people who are not in the Orthodox Christian movement who would call themselves Christians and have rules that you must keep to assure that you are that Christian. That's not how it works. There are those who have taken baptism and believe in regenerational baptism. They believe that when you are baptized, you are regenerated. 
And that is not my understanding of what the scriptures teach. That becomes conditional salvation. If I do something, I can be saved. And if that's the case, then we are not saved by grace. And Paul clearly teaches we are saved by grace. So when you start hearing all these conditions, beware. Something's going on that is not biblical. It's a little shocking what Paul says in verse 2. He's talking about the Judaizers, those who would put all these conditions on salvation and who, in fact, would say, you need to do these things to be saved. He says, beware of the dogs. I've never called anybody a dog before. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. I can tolerate evil workers a little bit. Beware of the false circumcision. He's talking about people who had been circumcised physically, and he's saying that is a false circumcision. That's not what it's really all about. I heard Mark say something in Sunday school, a number of things that touched my heart this morning. One particular one, he described someone he's gotten to know and has a ministry with who has an inscription on his chest. Atheist. Well, you know, here in the dear south, if we saw somebody and they were at the beach and they had atheist tattooed on their chest, most of us would want to make some distance between us and that person, wouldn't we? Because they're so radically different. Their whole thought process, their whole philosophy of life, obviously is different. I don't think that's what Paul is saying in verse 2. I don't think he's saying because these evildoers, these dogs, these people who are not truly circumcised are among us, I don't think he's saying separate from them. I think what he's saying is be discerning and understand that their belief is not rooted in Scripture. So they are evil in the sense that they are encouraging something that God does not ordain or bless. And when we start making that kind of a distinction and we're offended not by the person but by what they are advocating, then we can get up close to the person and let them know us and we can know them and potentially be a positive witness in their life. You know who the true circumcised are? If you look at Romans 2.29, you'll see. It's those who have been circumcised of the heart. It's where it's happened on the inside, not the outside. And that's how Paul can say these people are not true circumcision. For while they're trying to keep the letter of the law, something has not transpired in their heart. But when the Holy Spirit comes on us and the Holy Spirit draws us into a relationship and we surrender under the power of his love and his grace. Something transpires in here. We become a believer. Then, and only then, by believing, do we become a follower of Christ. Then, and only then, is our eternal salvation promised. If you look down at verses 4 through 7, <coughs> he tells us again that we're not saved by works. 
And what he does is he says, you know, if that were possible, look at me. And he gives a long list. He said, I was circumcised. I was born into Israel. I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews. I kept the law. I became a Pharisee. He said, I was zealous for my faith. I even persecuted the church when it was first started. If anybody's qualified to be saved by works, Paul says, I am. I have met the qualification. But he also says it counts for nothing. When you add it all up, it won't get me into heaven. I was struck some years ago by John 3.19. You get through reading John 3.16, for by grace we've been saved, and you get over to 3.19 and it says, but there's a judgment that has been put on the human race. You know what that judgment is? That the light would come into the world and we left to ourselves would choose darkness. We wouldn't choose Jesus. That's the grip that sin has on us. And we can't break that grip by doing good deeds. We can't overcome what's going on in here with external things. We are totally dependent on him doing a work in here. John 6.66 adds to that same theme. Remember, Jesus is preaching to a multitude of people. And somebody starts to grumble and say, you know, those teachings are too hard. And the multitude of people walk off and leave Jesus, and they go home. And I want you to know something, folks. If it wasn't for the grace that has been shown to us, by God regenerating us and giving us faith, and then through the power of his Holy Spirit helping us to express that faith, you and I would turn and go home. That's the grip that sin has on every one of us. What Paul is doing is Paul is saying, you cannot save yourself. There's no way. I hope you've been honest enough with yourself to come to that realization. Just stop and look back over your life. How many times have you tried to be righteous and found, looking back, that you failed? It's not about being righteous to be saved. It's about seeking to be righteous to say thanks to God. And we've got to get those in the right order to really understand them. I had a friend. He had a major impact on my life and my wife's life. His name was Dick Flynn. Dick was a pastor for 30-odd years in Carrollton, Georgia, one of the most giving men I have ever known in my whole life. People warmly called him Uncle Dick. He's the guy who touched me one Saturday afternoon and invited me to go to the Presbyterian Church in that little town. I'd never been in a Presbyterian church. I knew they were little white buildings on corners with little white fences around them. That's all I knew about them. And Dick came into my yard and sat down and started talking to me, and he was one of the nicest guys I ever met in my life. And he invited Linda and I to come to church. Didn't tell me he was the preacher. The next day, I was sitting in the congregation with my wife in that beautiful historic church, looking around trying to find this man I had met the day before, and he walked out with a robe on, and I almost fell over. 
and he walked into the pulpit, and when he got through preaching, he went to the back door, and I couldn't wait to shake hands. And as we started to shake hands, Dick took my hand, and he said, Bill, and he remembered my name and Linda's. That's a pretty good trick. And he said, I want you and Linda to come to lunch today. Well, folks, I wanted to go to lunch. I wanted to be around that man. There was something just magnetic about him. And I looked at Linda, and I knew she had a roast cooking while we were in church. And I looked at Linda, and Linda said, we have a roast cooking. And he said, can't you warm it up? Guess where we had lunch that day? Sitting at Dick Flynn's table. Twelve places set. Three meals a day. Anybody who wanted to eat a meal in Carrollton, Georgia, could walk in his unlocked door, go wash your hands, come have a prayer, and sit down and eat a meal. He had cots down the back hall. Anybody who needed a place to sleep could come to Dick Flynn's house, and they had a warm place to sleep. I don't know the exact number, but more than 20 people grew up around Dick some of them legally adopted by him. And those children, when they reached college age, Dick had no resources. He knew some folks who had bunches of resources. And he mustered those resources and got those kids all through college. What a wonderful man. My friend, who's with the Lord today, is not with him because of all those good deeds. That is not what saves a person. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the counsel of his own will, he didn't have a committee meeting, and he didn't get the church together and say who we're going to save. According to the counsel of his own will, he said, you're mine, you're mine, and guess what? We're his. And that's how my friend, Dick Flynn, got to heaven. And that's how you and I will get to heaven. I want you to look on down at the next set of verses. Look at 8 through 12. What he's truly doing is saying we're saved by faith. And the way he says it is beautiful. He says that faith has been given to us as we come into a relationship with Christ Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. That's a pretty good exchange. All of the sin of our life, the big ones, the little ones, the ones we own up to, the ones we don't own up to, all of it, every bit of it, past, present, and future, when we come into a relationship with Christ, all of that has been put on Jesus. And Jesus died for those sins. And his righteousness, the sinless Christ, has been attributed and accounted to us. Not because we earned it, because it's a gift based on faith. I was in a funeral home this last week, and I leaned over to my wife and I said, you know, there's not a cross in this room. And it dawned on me, funeral homes, and I don't mean this in any critical spirit at all, they're in business. And I guess in our age, there are places where the cross is not welcome because they're doing business with people who are not uniquely Christian. But how sad that is. 
for it's through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that there's any hope for eternal life. And there is no other way except through Jesus and Jesus alone. After Paul makes his point that we're saved by faith, he says an interesting thing to us. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already been perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And you know what I hear him saying? I hear him saying, quit fretting over your salvation. If you know God through Jesus Christ by faith, quit fretting about it. You're secure. Be secure. You're secure because you didn't save yourself. He saved you. And he's not going to throw you away. You're his. So now let's press on with our life. Let's get on with our life. I knew a guy in seminary. When I first saw him, I thought he was a professor. He was in his early 50s. He was walking with a cane. He was a student, same class I was in. Charlie had a cane because he had adult-onset polio, and it had really messed him up. And Charlie labored to walk. But God had called him out of the very successful real estate business in South Florida and had called him to be a minister. Charlie told me a story. Charlie had braces from his knees down. And whenever he'd stand up, you'd see him lock his legs back. And you'd see him walk, most of the time with two canes, sometimes with one. And he said he had a business trip after he'd gone through rehabilitation. And he had to go to a northern city. I think it was Chicago. And he said that getting on an airplane was a chore. Trying to handle luggage was almost impossible. So he carried a briefcase with overnight clothes in it. And he said he got off the plane took a taxi cab to the big building where he was supposed to go for a meeting. And he said he got out and he'd never seen so many people in his whole life. He said he didn't know where they were all going, but they were all going somewhere and they were on the sidewalk like this. And he said he stood there for a minute, his briefcase and his cane in each hand, and got his legs straight. And then he looked and there were monumental steps and a landing and monumental steps, and another landing going into the building. And in those days, back in the early 50s, it was not convenient if you had a handicap to try to get in those kinds of buildings. He said he took a deep breath, made his way across the sidewalk, and started to labor with those braces and those canes up those steps, one at a time, turned a little sideways. He said people were just all over the steps. He said he got up the first set of monumental steps, got across that first landing, and as he was about to step up to start up the second set of monumental steps, somebody brushed into him, caused him to spin around and lose his balance. He said, I fell to the ground, and one cane went that way, and one cane went that way, and my briefcase was where I had been standing. And he said, I'm on the ground, and my legs are hurting because of my braces are being twisted. And he said, I'm laying there, and nobody 
stopped to help me. He said, all I could see were calves and feet as people were shuffling by. And he said, there's just an unbelievable number of people, but nobody was helping me. And he said, as I laid there in pain, I felt two hands under my arms. Grabbed me under the armpit, and he said, a man who was much bigger than I lifted me to my feet and stood me up and reached down and put my braces back in place grabbed me by the back of the belt and reached out and got a cane and stuck it in this hand and got another cane and stuck it in this hand, retrieved the briefcase and then gave him a pat and said, try again, buddy, and walked off. You and I are saved by grace. That is absolutely secure. Now, as we press on, as we seek to live the balance of this life, you're going to have some times you fall down. You're not going to live it successfully every moment. Amen? It doesn't happen. Not in this lifetime. Not this side of the gate. But you know what? He's with you. And he will absolutely pick you up and say, get on with it. Because he loves you and because you belong to him. You know, if you start to really believe in your heart of hearts about righteousness being ours because of our faith and not because of our works, it'll have an effect on your life. When you get up in the morning, you're going to want to serve the Lord. You're not just going to want to serve you. Because it's about the only way you and I have of saying, thank you, Father, for the grace you've shown me. So it gives a whole new look at the life we're going to live. And it will change the way you worship. When I first began to understand salvation by faith, it has changed this whole experience for me. I'm here because of him. I'm his because of him. In spite of the dirty rags, I'm his because he loved me. And you're his because he loved you. And when you walk in that door on Sunday to worship, you're coming to worship the one who really loved you. And he demonstrated it by giving his only son. Do you understand, folks? What a blessed people we are. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, there are not adequate words to say thank you. Really, Lord, if we lived an exemplary life, that's still not going to adequately say thanks. But that's not what it's all about. It's about you having loved us and about you not changing your mind and about you working in our life between now and the time we're united with you and about eternity. Simply, dear God, thank you. Thank you for the faith that has saved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.
I want you to know something about Charlie. Charlie took about four and a half years to graduate from seminary, not three back in those days. And he wasn't in any hurry. So he was in his mid or later 50s, walking with two crutches. He joined the Presbyterian Church in America, and this is just after it came into existence. And he became the pastor of a church in Alabama. And Charlie and Nancy pastored that church until the Lord called him home. And I do believe the Lord propped him up all of those years, just like he props us up. God be with you, my friends, and God keep you. May you feel his hands holding you up. And may you walk in his power according to his grace with absolute assurance that you're okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.